Welcome to the Public Services Reform Podcast from the Centre for Market and Public Organisation in Bristol. My name's Paul Gregg. I'm the Director of the Families, Children and Welfare Stream at CMPO. And today we're talking to Professor Jane Waldfogel from the School of Social Work and Public Affairs at Columbia University in New York. And we were discussing the issue of early years child development and social mobility, a topic which has been resonating very strongly in the UK in the last few years, with all political parties interested in the strong evidence of children going from poorer families into less successful adults in terms of health, education, earnings, and many other dimensions of life chances. Jane, you and colleagues in uh, in Colombia have been doing a new project around uh, social mobility in the early years. Can you give us a description of that research? Um, yes, Paul. Um in some recent work, uh, Liz Washbrook, who's actually normally here in, in Bristol, but who was visiting me in Columbia last year, uh, and I used some data from uh, both U.S. and U.K. birth cohort studies to look at uh, early gaps in school readiness. And what we were interested in knowing was how much of the gap in school readiness and school achievement already exists at the time that children start school. Uh, so we looked specifically at gaps in school readiness, both cognitive readiness and behavioral readiness across children from different income groups. And so we looked at how large those gaps were across income groups, and then we looked at what factors seemed to explain the gaps, and then finally uh, we reviewed the evidence on policies to get a sense of what policies might be available to remedy those kinds of gaps. And can you tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of the gaps across America and the US and, and what factors lie behind the emergence of early attainment gaps in children? Well, in terms of the gaps, uh, the findings were quite similar across the two countries. Uh, in both countries, there are substantial gaps in school readiness, both in terms of cognitive development and behavioral development across income groups already at the time that school children start school. The gaps are larger in terms of cognitive preparedness than in terms of behavior, but they're there in both countries. And, you know, it's very concerning because uh, with children starting out school so unequally, uh, it's very difficult to imagine that they're going to end school on an equal footing. Uh, so these early gaps are really of concern. In terms of what we found in, um, in explanatory factors contributing to these gaps, we looked in detail at a number of different factors that you might imagine would help explain gaps between children from different income groups. So let me just back up and say what we were doing was comparing children whose family incomes were in the bottom fifth of the income distribution for their country to children whose family incomes were in the middle fifth of the income distribution for their country. That was the main focus of our analysis. So comparing low-income children to middle-income children. And the factors that we looked at were things like parenting style, the home learning environment, maternal health, child health, experience of child care, uh, maternal education, demographic differences, differences in factors like race and ethnicity, and then whatever else might be unexplained. And the really surprising result was that we found that between a third and a half of the gaps that were present between these low-income and middle-income children at school entry in terms of their cognitive development, between a third and a half of these gaps were due to factors related to parenting and the home environment. So parenting and the home environment 
played a much bigger role than I would have expected. Can you tell us a little bit about what parenting factors you're talking about? What is it that parents are doing differentially that are impacting on, on child development? Well, in the, in, um, in the U.S. data, we have a very detailed set of measures of something that we think of as being parenting style. And so these are observations of the mother and uh, the child, and they're observations of how sensitive and responsive the parent is to the child. Uh, so they're really a measure of sensitive, responsive, nurturing parenting. We also have a very commonly used measure of something called the home learning environment. So this is a measure of how many books and toys are in the home, whether someone reads to the child, whether someone takes the child on outings. And it's these factors together, these set of factors, that really underlie uh, much of the differences in cognitive development at school entry between low-income kids and their middle-income peers. Can you say, is there any valuatory evidence which can say that these things are malleable to policy? Can, can interventions change these, these gradients? Can they change these parenting styles? Well, you know, that's the important question. And um, there are a host of parenting programs out there that aim to improve parenting. Um, many of them parents enjoy participating in and report that they liked and benefited from. But the evidence base has really been very thin in terms of the ability of programs to improve parenting in such a way as to improve children's cognitive outcomes. And, you know, I was, I was happy to see when I went through the evidence again for this review to find that there were actually a few studies that have found effects on parenting of these programs. Could you tell us a little bit about those programs and what, what, they, what they try to do and, and how they do it? Well, one of the best-known programs uh, that's got a very strong track record is a program called the Nurse Family Partnership Program, which has been piloted in several st states in the United States and is now being piloted in some locations in the UK. This is a program that provides uh, pretty intensive home visiting to first-time mothers uh, during pregnancy and in the first two years after the birth. And uh, the visits are delivered by nurses, highly trained nurses, and they focus on improving parenting, improving parents' knowledge of child development, and providing support for often vulnerable and isolated first-time mothers who may not have received you know, the best quality parenting themselves. So the theory behind these programs is that by providing support to the parents, they enable the parents to parent their children in a different way. And by providing knowledge, they enable the parents to parent their children in a different way than they themselves were parented when they were children. And these programs have demonstrated effects on parenting, uh, effects on child outcomes like reading and vocabulary scores, and, on, um, and have been effective at reducing child maltreatment. And these, are, these have been tested using the gold standard of randomized controlled trials. So uh, that evidence base is very strong. But there are actually a few other programs, including a couple of programs in the UK, that provide reading support to parents. So they work with parents to teach them how to read to their children and in turn, parents are shown to read more to the children, and the children are shown to have improved vocabulary scores or improved reading scores. So this is, this is very promising evidence in a field where the evidence base has not always been so strong historically. Is there 
any evidence that uh, there may be alternative ways of reducing these gaps through preschool settings or programs targeting through through school or, or preschools rather than through parenting and, and what's the relative evidence on, on their success the um you know, I have to say the evidence base on preschool programs is substantially stronger. So there's there's quite a, a well-documented set of preschool interventions that have shown themselves to improve children's school readiness and with larger effects for more disadvantaged children than for more advantaged children. So exactly the pattern you would expect if they're going to close gaps in school readiness. We actually looked at the role that preschool is playing using the U.S. data uh, we've got a large compensatory education program for low-income children in the states called Head Start. And so we looked at the role that Head Start was playing, and sure enough, Head Start is actually acting to close gaps between low-income children and middle-income children. And we also modeled what would happen if all low-income children were moved into either Head Start or pre-kindergarten, which is another publicly funded universal uh, preschool program, very high quality, and moving all low-income children into either pre-kindergarten or Head Start would close a very large portion of these income-related gaps. So there's certainly a very strong role for, for child care programs to play. So in a sense, the, there's two domains which you can potentially influence. Yes. One is, is the sort of the home domain and, and the parenting styles, and the other is sort of uh, extra support. But can you sort of draw out then in terms of if, if a government here was looking to close some of the early attainment gaps of children before they enter, enter school as part of a program to tackle uh, inequalities in opportunity for children from poor families, what would you think are the key policy levers or interventions that governments might, the government might try in attempt to close these, close these education gaps? Well, the situation here is a little different than in the United States because, as I said, in the United States we were modeling what would happen if we served all low-income children with Head Start or pre-kindergarten. In this country, all children are universally entitled to preschool at the ages of three and four. So in some ways you're kind of already there in terms of what we, we would be recommending for the United States. So with that kind of as backdrop, given that you already have universal center or school-based preschool for three and four-year-olds, you know, I think if I were a policymaker, I would be looking at the, the children below age three and thinking about ways to get them more, um, more educational stimulation, both within the home and in high-quality childcare. As you say, in the UK, we have uh, universal uh, childcare for three and four-year-olds. But uh, some political parties uh, are proposing that extra resources should be made available for the teaching and, and, and support of children from poor families, uh, potentially from very early ages. Is there, uh, is there room, in a sense, for extra investment in preschool or early school settings which can lead to the closing of these kind of gaps within a universal system, a sort of a... a Everybody gets something, but the, but the poor get more. Absolutely. And I think, actually, if the interest is in closing gaps, I think you have to do it. Because otherwise, you rely on the idea that preschool will close gaps because low-income kids will benefit more than more affluent kids. And that is, to some extent, true if the care is of very high quality. But the other way to close gaps is to provide more services, a higher dosage, if you like, 
to the low-income kids or a higher quality service. Uh, so I, there's been some discussion of uh, extending preschool to low-income two-year-olds, disadvantaged two-year-olds, which I think is exactly the right way to go. Uh, it's a kind of head start model of make sure that those kids get, get a little bit of child care ahead of the other children. You know, I, I've looked at the participation statistics for uh, children under three before the universal offer starts. And the middle class children, the middle income children, are, are already in preschool before the age of three. They're mm -hmm. in preschool that their parents are purchasing for them. The children who are not in preschool before the age of three are the low income children. So I think if there's not initiatives to reach out and provide extra services to the two-year-olds and the other under threes free of charge to their parents or at low cost, those children are going to be behind before they even start preschool. There's been some, some debate as to whether early childcare leads to behavioural problems in children. Can you give your views on, on what's the, the evidence base around childcare and behavioural problems, and in particular about whether high-quality care can overcome some of those concerns? Well, as I, as I was saying before, there's a, quite a large evidence base uh, regarding the effects of high-quality childcare on child outcomes. And in, uh, in a host of early childcare, early intervention programs, randomized trials, high-quality programs, uh, there have never been adverse effects on children's behavior. Uh, if anything, there are positive effects on children's behavioral outcomes. So the original one of these studies, the Perry Preschool Project in the United States, sort of forerunner of our Head Start program, not only boosted children's school achievement, but reduced crime in adulthood in a to a very substantial extent, reduced violent crime on the part of the children who were treated. So um, I think that evidence completely rebuts the idea that there's a link between childcare, an inevitable link between childcare and acting out behavior problems. You know, we're, we're experience of childcare has been linked to behavior problems is when children have early and extensive experience of not good quality childcare. And that just becomes an opportunity for bad behavior to develop. And it seems to be particularly the case for boys Boys starting from the age of around three or four uh, play with boys. They don't play with girls. Uh, they don't play near the teachers, who are primarily women. So what happens is you have little boys playing by themselves uh, in a pretty rough-and-tumble way and with no one intervening. And so when they come to school, they come to school with those behaviors, grabbing, hitting, pushing, uh, because they've been allowed to uh, have those behaviors in their preschool settings because they haven't had adequate supervision and adequate quality teachers. And so when the children, those children get to school, they're reported as having more aggressive, more acting out behaviors. But there's no inevitable link between childcare and those behaviors. It's, it's purely a function of the quality of the care.